0: Good afternoon everyone, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you very much for be- making the time during such a sunny day. My presentation today is really going to follow on from Anna's and that I'm continuing thinking about the theme of reconciliation but I'm going to connect it more to ideas of information recovery and accountability. Um, As we all know, reconciliation was something that was considered in 1998 in the Good Friday Agreement. The agreement itself talks about the need to acknowledge and address the harms experienced by victims, saying that that's a necessary element of reconciliation. So the idea that we needed to do this was there right at the outset, and in the years since 1998, a number of official and civil society initiatives have tried to put forward proposals for reconciliation. But I think many of us recognize recognize that today, 25 years after the agreement, it's still quite common for people to talk, to talk about the shortfalls in reconciliation in our society or point to various pieces of evidence saying that perhaps you haven't fulfilled fully that promise yet or the reconciliation project has stalled in some ways. Um, and as Anna mentioned, and be part of the motivation for why we are looking at new legislative proposals today on reconciliation on information recovery. So in my presentation today, I'm going to start on kind of similar ground as Anna. I'm going to talk about what reconciliation means within the literature, uh, particularly within the field of transitional justice. Then I'm going to start thinking about how does that intersect with information recovery and accountability. I'll do that at quite a general level, drawing on international theory and practice, and then just towards the end, I'll say a few words about Northern Ireland and the, the current bill. So reconciliation is a term that's been written about extensively for quite a long time in a number of disciplines. So you have lots written about reconciliation from theologians, political scientists, sociologists, psychologists, you know, a number of different ideas. And I think as you'd expect from people from such diverse backgrounds and professional um, experiences, they come at this question with a variety of different lenses. They ask very different questions. They think about reconciliation in different forms. And so as a result, this concept is something that academics would call quite fuzzy. There's quite a lot of variety, there's quite a lot of contestation around what it could mean. But I think from looking through some of that literature, and I, you know, apologies, I haven't been as diligent with Anna in terms of putting the sources on my slides, but they are in the briefing memo if you're interested, um, I think there are a number of points of consensus that you can see. So firstly, there is a sense that reconciliation is something that should be both backward-looking and forward-looking. Backward-looking in the sense that when people talk about the need for reconciliation, they are recognizing that something happened in the past. Something in the past disrupted relationships and caused harms. And so reconciliation has to look backwards to work out what that was, what those harms were, and then it needs to look forwards to try and identify measures that can be taken to restore the relationships in some way that have been undermined. And so through that, there's a sense that reconciliation at its heart is about relationships. But, as you'd expect from people coming from different disciplines, they think about different forms of relationships. So the literature talks about reconciliation at an individual level, between individual victims and individual offenders, perhaps. You see that type of reconciliation featuring in conversations about restorative justice, for example. Um, We also think about reconciliation in terms of antagonistic communities. Um, And in many contexts, reconciliation is thought about in terms of the inhabitants of a territory being reconciled in some way with a state that's been involved in abuses and then at the other level you can have reconciliation between states and so I think we can all reflect perhaps on whether those different re- levels resonate with our experiences here in Northern Ireland. Certainly when I think about reconciliation between states I think of the visit of Queen Elizabeth II to Dublin a number of years ago and the significance of that so I think we can see examples of the different levels here. Um, But within that, within that broad notion that there should be some sort of reconciliation of uh, of relationships, there's a lot of ambiguity. um, There's uncertainty about what form future relationships should take. What is the end point that we're looking for? And there's a lot of uncertainty about what types of actions we need to get there. And obviously there's a recognition that the actions that might be necessary for individual forms of reconciliation is quite different from the actions that might be necessary for interstate reconciliation. So I'm turning now to thinking particularly about the transitional justice field. And for those of you who don't know, this is an international field of research and practice that looks at how societies that have undergone systemic violence, either in conflict or authoritarianism, or perhaps as a result of uh, colonialism, those types of big, big uh, enduring violence, how they recover from those harms. And reconciliation is a concept that's frequently invoked in this field not entirely comfortably. I think it's a a word that invokes trepidation. I think among many transitional justice scholars, Anna and I were at a conference recently, and people were always using disclaimers when they were using this term. So, and I think that's because, as Anna was referring to, reconciliation is sometimes used in a very genuine, honest, transparent manner, in a good faith way to try and improve conditions within a society. And in other instances, reconciliation is often used as cover for measures which are much more about pushing one-sided approaches to the past or pushing some form of denial. An example of that would be the Pinochet's amnesty in Chile, which provided complete impunity for crimes committed during the dictatorship, was called the Law of National Reconciliation. And so those types of experiences in many places mean that people approach this term cautiously i think but today and i think the other part of it is the experiences of countries like south africa where reconciliation was part of a good faith effort to address the crimes of the past how that process has unfolded over the years i think has prompted a lot of reflection about what we can meaningfully hope for in terms of reconciliation from transitional justice interventions so i think today we invoke reconciliation often. It's recognized as a key objective of transitional justice, but there's also a recognition that no one transitional justice mechanism in and of itself can deliver reconciliation. At best, it can be a contributing factor within a much broader political landscape. Um, Also, when we think about what the objectives are, what type of future relationships you want to achieve. As Anna mentioned, there are thinner and thicker conceptualizations. So at the thinner end of the spectrum, People who talk about the fact that some form of non-violent conflict is an inherent condition of democratic life within societies will say that we, we expect tensions, we expect contestations. That's normal. Reconciliation should be you know, just recognizing that and thought of as the absence of violent conflict. Um, many people think that that narrow notion of reconciliation is perhaps not enough to try and promote healing and to try and build stable governance as well. So more commonly in the field, people talk about thicker notions of reconciliation. Some of that, ideas of thicker, thicker notions are about an understanding of how relationships might work in the future. It's rarely about you know friendships and relationships. It's not that, it's about principles in which relationships may operate. So Anna referred to some of those in terms of trust, respect, dignity. All of those sort of concepts fit into that thicker notion of reconciliation. But also if we think of reconciliation as backward and forward looking, thicker notions of reconciliation talk about trying to understand what caused the past rupture in relationships and what harms resulted from that. Trying to diagnose those those problems and put in place measures to, to address those structural factors. And so it's a much more comprehensive idea of what might need to be done to deliver reconciliation. Drawing from that, today reconciliation is generally recognized as a very long-term process and it's one which can progress and regress over time You know, in response to various political or grassroots interventions or perhaps changing political landscapes. So things can advance reconciliation and things can cause it to be harmed. Now. I'm going to focus particularly on the idea of truth and narrative and how that plays into reconciliation because I think that's one of the most resonant themes for information recovery. So it's interesting for me when we talk about an absence of reconciliation, a very weak reconciliation in different societies around the world, one of the, the, there, there's a lot of commonality about what that looks like in terms of narratives. So societies where reconciliation is, is weak. Are often characterized as places where there are narrow, polarized, and exclusionary narratives, where different communities or different actors within a society find it hard to listen to and respect the views of others. In the, in the aftermath of a conflict, those types of narrow, polarizing narratives often um, mean that there's a lack of agreed understanding about the causes of the conflict. It may also mean that certain groups of actors may develop narratives that uh, recognize, or emphasize their, the victimhood within their community but don't recognize the victimhood of others. Or conversely, uh, put a lot of blame and responsibility for the violence on others but don't look at the responsibility of their own community. So you see these exclusionary narratives developing. Um, and I think where measures have been introduced under the, with the, under the guise of reconciliation, which have sought to sustain, reinforce, legitimize those types of one-sided narratives. They've they've often done very little to promote reconciliation. On on the contrary, they've often become places of contestation themselves. The laws, the mechanisms become something which provokes division. But moving on from that, when we think about what we could achieve through transitional justice, what type of narrative do we want if we don't want these polarizing exclusionary narratives? What are we looking for? I think today most transitional justice scholars, influenced quite heavily by the work in memory studies, would say that we can't try possibly to achieve a fully inclusive and comprehensive narrative of the past. I think we have to recognize that in every society there will be collections of narratives in different ways. The idea that narratives have to be collective to some degree. If we are thinking about reconciliation as about rebuilding relationships, having a set of individualised narratives that don't speak to each other, that aren't talked about in a more collective manner, that will do very little to enhance reconciliation. So we're thinking about trying to, you know, how do you reconcile these different collective narratives that exist in society? What does that look like? And for scholars it's generally thought about as trying to identify points of overlapping dissensus and then trying to build on those points, trying to expand them in different ways while recognising that different communities are entitled to their different perspectives. It's also trying to build a climate where people can listen to each other and learn from each other's stories in a climate of, of respect and trying to ensure that one narrative does not dominate over the others. So focusing now on information recovery, so it's a lot of, a lot of the backdrop, a lot of the theories so and what does this mean for when we think about information recovery. I think the first question for us is, should reconciliation be a goal of information recovery? In the transitional justice field, we often talk about reconciliation as a goal of truth recovery. But here in Northern Ireland, we don't talk about truth recovery. We use this other phrase, information recovery. And you know, it raises questions for me about why do we do that? I think some of the reasons might be really understandable. You know, I, I think there's a lot of problems with talking about truth. We can't get one truth. It's something that's objective. And so I think it's an, I think it's a, you know, an understandable resi- nervousness around that term. But I think also the way that we particularize information recovery here in Northern Ireland, we think of processes where an individual can go and ask for information about their own experiences or the experiences of their family members. Or we think of a process where an individual offender can go and, tell it, you know, go and provide information about their own actions. So we're thinking of something that's quite individualized and um, related to particular cases. Truth recovery, on the other hand, is much more collective. When we have truth commissions in other societies, what people think about is, they might hear societal individual stories. There's often space for victim testimony and offender testimony within truth commissions, but what comes out of that process is is an overarching report that talks about the causes of violence, that talks about the consequences of it, that builds on that data to then try and make recommendations for societal improvements. So the purposes of truth recovery are inherently collective, and in that sense are tied to reconciliation information recovery, as conceptualized as a very individualized process, its linkages to reconciliation are much more difficult to see. So, So I think there's a question there about how far do these two concepts match up. But I'll put that to one side for now and think about, well, if we are saying it's about reconciliation, the next question for me is, well, what type of reconciliation are we talking about? What are the relationships that were damaged in the past that this process is meant to try and address? is it about individuals? Is it about communities? Is it about people in the state? What are we trying to achieve here? If we're saying this is about reconciliation, what what is the understanding of it? And based on that vision, how is that then incorporated into the design of the process? Bearing in mind that different forms of reconciliation may require very different measures to facilitate them. And if we have a process that's about generating individual testimonies, if reconciliation is about something much more collective, what are the linkages between that? What happens to the individual testimonies? Are, are they made public? Are they analysed in ways to help us identify themes and patterns? Are they constructed in different ways to, to inform collective narratives? And I think also something that's come up in other countries is about how reconciliation is conceptualized within a society based on that society's moral values. So here I'm thinking particularly about South Africa, which as many of you will know, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was led uh, inspirationally by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was an Anglican Archbishop. He brought to his work within the Truth Commission his profound Christian faith, which I think resonated very strongly with many who engaged with the commission, but it also meant that he talked about Christian values of atonement repentance forgiveness for him reconciliation brought in all those ideas for many people that was powerful but for some victims that was deeply problematic they felt that they were under pressure to forgive even in circumstances where those who had harmed them had not engaged with the amnesty process and had not provided information and so when we're thinking about reconciliation i think it's not just about the technical stuff but what's it trying to achieve but also what values do we understand by it i think can be quite important so those are the general questions, I think, that should inform our thinking about can any information recovery process contribute to reconciliation. The next question is more like how could it do that? So I think the first part is if you want an information recovery process to contribute to reconciliation, you have to ensure that people engage with it. You know, it's the first part, so it has to be legitimate. People have to want to take part in this. Um, Part of that can be about the process by which the the mechanism is set up, but also once it's set up, you have to think about what sort of safeguards there are to make people feel reassured that they can take part. So that could be thinking about things like preventing re-traumatization for victims, making sure appropriate safeguards are there. Could be about ensuring the veracity of the information that's produced by the process. I think other questions would be, well, if this is about some form of collective understanding of our past, what will happen to individualized testimonies that go into this process? You know, in South Africa, where there were amnesty hearings, if they related to serious human rights violations, people put in written applications for an amnesty, but then there were public hearings which were televised that victims could attend, victims could make impact statements, but they could also be represented by lawyers, and either the victims themselves or their legal representatives could ask questions during that process. And all of that, the, the, that public dimension of it, I think, was, was was widely viewed and helped shape understandings in different ways, and then also fed into the report and recommendations that came out of that process. So, you know, there are lots of different models by which this could be done, but I think there's a question about what, what comes out, what do we know? If we're saying this is about recovering information, who gets to see the information and how? Then tied to that is what happens to it, how will it be analysed, is it going to be individual testimony that's gathered, held securely and confidentially, and perhaps put put into family reports, perhaps not, and then destroyed at the end of the Commission's work? Or is it going to be published in some way, and what would that look like? What sort of things could be published and could not? Um, What types of analysis could it be subjected to? Uh, Would it just be statistical analysis? Would it be something more qualitative? and I think also something need to think about is how would people respond to this, you know, would it feed into rec- rec- recommendations around reconciliation and what are, everyone, what, what are the responsibilities of different actors engaging in this process to think about how do we understand these, these ideas, how do we set the climate, the tone for these types of conversations um, and think about what, what, what steps need to be taken on the basis of the information that's recovered. Now I'll speak a little briefly about accountability because I was I was asked to bring that in. It's quite a different concept to information recovery um, because of course information information recovery as it's envisaged in Northern Ireland is intended to lead to immunity, so the, the absence of prosecutions where as accountability when we often think about it is about criminal justice processes. So criminal justice processes are based on the principle of individual criminal responsibility. When we're thinking about post-conflict situations, we're often thinking about individual criminal responsibility for serious physical violence. So these types of trials obviously are individualized approaches to the past. They can be quite important where they are able to prove you know, to a high evidential standard that certain events took place. Um, but that's, you know, the, the legal process brings lots of complications with it, and trials don't always result in verdicts happening. Um, and it can be difficult to get sufficient evidence when you're thinking of historical crimes. And I think also sociologists writing about trials would talk about how difficult it is to think about collective narratives coming from very individualized legal processes. So I think trials have a very important function in society in terms of the delivery of justice. Whether they are the right mechanisms to deliver and truth and reconciliation is a different question. That's not to say they're not worth doing. It's just to say that we can, we can ask about whether reconciliation should be thought of as, as the proper outcome of that or is justice in itself a sufficient outcome. Um, but if we think about accountability more broadly than just criminal just, justice, I think that raises a number of different questions. So in all contexts that have had conflicts the harms of the past usually extend beyond physical violence often preceding that violence and resulting from it are a whole variety of structural violations that people experience that in some cases can have serious implications on people's ability to live dignified lives in a variety of ways and the criminal justice process responds to physical violence, but if we think about injustices more broadly, there can be a whole variety of different measures you could think about in terms of accountability that might need to be undertaken. And so, for me, that raises questions about, well, what comes out of processes to deal with the past? If we're gathering information, we're thinking about what needs to be done, what types of recommendations could be made to think about not just the physical violence, but the structural violence as well? So. Just on my very last slide, I'll say a few words about the uh, Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill. So, obviously, reconciliation is in the title of the bill. It's going to be the title of the commission that's set up. But having looked through the bill and the explanatory notes and the Human Rights Memorandum, I couldn't see a definition of what reconciliation meant or really a vision of what type of reconciliation we're considering. I think from government statements, and actually the recent Kane amendments touch on this a bit more, it seems that the vision of reconciliation there is about good relations and about anti-sectarianism, which is in keeping, I think, with policy positions over a number of years, as Anna was referring to. I think there's also an emphasis on individualized information recovery, and if there is any acknowledgement of responsibility that will be done at an individual level, and we don't know whether it will be made public or not. where people provide information to, to, to the commission, that information could be tied to review. So it could inform a report that goes to families, but it may not do so. It's at the discretion of the commission whether, the, whether that happens or not. And so it's not clear what happens if, it doesn't, if it's not linked to a review. Um, it's also not clear, I think, what would become known. So if someone applies for immunity and it's not granted... Would, those, would, it, would we know in like, which cases it's been denied? Would victims be informed? There's a lot of ambiguities about what, act, what, what would be in, uh, come out of this process in terms of public information. Um, I think also what we've seen over the years since the Stormont House Agreement, Reams Bradley, is a weakening of the links between information recovery and themes and patterns. So the Stormont House Agreement, for example, would have allowed the analysis of themes and patterns to draw on all four of the mechanisms that were proposed under that agreement. Today, there isn't really the connections between the the information recovery process and the analysis of themes and patterns that academics would be appointed to do. So we're seeing this kind of separation out from it. So it makes it harder for the information recovery process, I think, to feed into those collective understandings of the past. Um, And I think, too, the process as it's set out at the moment, as I understand it, means that there will be recommendations around reconciliation but they'll be informed by the oral history and memorialization work. They won't be informed by the information recovery work. Um, So for me, I think this process may have value for gathering information for families. You may may bring to light things that were not known before, perhaps depending on how robust any of the reviews are, but it's, it's going to have limited space for trying to build overlapping understandings of the causes of the violence, of its impact on victims and the ways it continues to shape northern irish society so it doesn't fit well with how reconciliation i think is generally understood in academic literature